Okay, Romans chapter 12. We'll read the first eight verses here. Paul writes to the church, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Once upon a time, a farmer was out in his fields when he noticed a strange cloud formation overhead. There in the sky, he could make out the letters P and C. He just knew the Lord was speaking to him. He concluded, God must want me to preach Christ. And so the farmer, he sold his farm, he enrolled in his Bible college, he was ordained and got his credentials, he graduated from the school, he accepted a position as a local pastor, and he preached his first sermon. But the fellow was awful. I mean, boring with a capital B. I mean, the guy stunk. Obviously, he was a terrible teacher. And one of the church members, you know, familiar with the story of his call to the ministry, he approached him after the sermon and he asked him, he said, Pastor, when you saw that PC in the clouds, are you sure the Lord wasn't telling you to plant corn? <laughs> hey, without a doubt, here is the most common question a pastor gets asked. How do I determine God's will for my life? It's a question that baffles many Christians, but it really shouldn't. For finding God's will for your life is not as perplexing, it's not as complicated as you might think. Especially if you've taken the steps and gotten your life in the proper position. You see, walking in the will of God is like water skiing on the lake. Maybe some of you have been water skiing this summer. I mean, once you're up on your skis... Skimming across the lake, skiing is a piece of cake. I mean, a tight grip, a little bit of balance, that's all that's required. But the challenge is getting up. You got to buckle your life jacket and adjust your skis and get your feet in the bindings and keep the toes up out of the water. You got to get the rope between your skis and your weight back and your arms stiff and then boom! The boat roars forward. And you hope you don't face plant right in the lake. You hope you rise up on your skis. But once you're up, once you're up, it's just a matter of holding on. 
You see, getting started is what's so difficult. And this is true with finding and walking in the will of God. It's a struggle getting started. But once you're up and moving forward, it's just a matter of trusting and abiding and holding on. This morning, we're going to learn how to walk in the will of God. For here in the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12, Paul lists for us six simple steps to get ourselves in position to follow in God's will. If you're taking notes, here they are. Step number one, present your body. Step two, renew your mind. Step three, humble your heart. Four, exercise your faith. Five, find your place. And then number six, use your gift. Here's step one. Read with me verse one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The first step for any believer to live his or her life in the will of God is to present your body to God. Have you done this? If not, you're still in the water. Hey, the Old Testament sacrifice was a butchered carcass. But God no longer likes his sacrifices well done. Today, he orders them rare. He wants them still alive. Alive and kicking, mooing on the plate. God is now into living sacrifices. Abraham's son Isaac was a living sacrifice. He willingly offered his body to God. It was literally bound to the altar. This meant that Isaac had no plans of his own. There was nothing he had to do, no place he had to be, no one he had to see. Isaac made himself available for whatever the father had in mind. Have you done this? Have you presented your body to God? Reminds me of the little boy. He was sitting out at the end of the pew when the offering plate was being passed. He grabbed the plate. He took it. He set it down right there in the altar. And he got out of his seat and he went and stood right there in the middle of the offering plate. Well, the usher, he, he was surprised. He said, son, what are you doing? And that's when the little guy replied, well, I learned in Sunday school this morning that I'm supposed to give myself to God. And how right he was. Years ago in the city of Portland, there was a handball championship. The city sponsored a, a handball tournament. And surprisingly, it was won by a man 39 years old. In his quest for the title, he had to defeat challengers half his age and in better condition. In addition to all this, he was a Vietnam veteran who had lost an arm in combat. When asked how he overcame such enormous obstacles in order to win this tournament, he said this, decisions. Handball is a game of decisions. With each play, you have to decide if you're going to use your right hand or your left hand. For me, that decision's already been made. I can concentrate elsewhere. When we give ourselves to God totally and completely, we no longer are torn in two directions. It takes a lot of effort to straddle a fence, does it not? It's only after you decide who it is you intend to please that you can channel all of your energy in one direction in the goal of walking in His will. This is why the first step to walking in the will of God is to present your body. 
Well, this next step to living in God's will is in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I like how the Phillips translation renders verse 2. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Resist the pressure to conform, to be like everyone else, to just go with the flow, to join the pack. Yes, the second step to walking in the will of God is to renew your mind. It's to learn to see life from God's vantage point. You know, we usually think of peer pressure as an adolescent problem. But did you know that many adults also suffer, are tempted by peer pressure? I heard once of a retail store in Utah that bought several used cars and parked them out in front of their shop. They wanted to give the impression that this was a crowded place, that their shop was the place to be. Business increased immediately. I hope you don't fall for such things. I hope you don't just go with the flow. Remember, toilet paper goes with the flow. Not healthy Christians. If we're going to walk in God's will, we've got to learn to swim against the current. Faithfulness is upstream, not downstream. Rather than blend in, a Christian needs to stand out. We need to think God's thoughts. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. God wants to create in us new attitudes, heavenly perspectives. He wants us to be spiritually motivated. He wants to renew our minds. I've heard it said that a Christian is either a thermometer or a thermostat. Some people are thermometers. They're always conforming to room temperature. They want to be cool or they're into what's hot. Whereas other people are thermostats. They don't register the prevailing temperature. They set it. Hey, make it your goal to change your world, not be changed by it. You be the trendsetter. Don't conform, be transformed. We find God's will by renewing our minds. And then third, to walk in the will of God, it requires that we humble our hearts. Paul says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. When God begins to work in our lives, our tendency is to let it go to our heads. We get proud. We assume the credit. We forget that the scoreboard of our life reads, me, zero, God, everything. Don't think too highly of yourself. In high school, I was a basketball player. I was a pretty good basketball player. At least I thought I was pretty good. I guess you could say I was a legend in my own mind. One night, I was particularly proud of being in the starting lineup. And so I ran over to the bench right before the game started. We were doing our warm-ups, and I went over there, and I pulled off my sweatpants, you know, to get ready for the big game. And it wasn't until my sweatpants were about halfway off that I realized that I had put my sweatpants on without putting on my gym shorts underneath. It made for a rather embarrassing debut that night. I scored two points the whole night. I was so rattled I couldn't play. You see, God has ways of releasing some air out of an inflated head. Paul tells us to think of ourselves soberly. 
The Greek word means to be in one, one's own right mind. It was a legal term used in a last will and testament. It validated the person's sanity. To think soberly was to think objectively and rationally and honestly. To have a sane and objective estimation of oneself. Hey, we should never be proud. But neither should we go to the other extreme and be self-deprecating or self-abasing. I mean, if you have a talent or if you do a job well, there's nothing wrong acknowledging your skill. Just as long as you keep it all in perspective. One night after dinner, Teddy Roosevelt and an overnight guest, they walked out onto the White House lawn to talk about important matters of national security. After a long discussion, President Roosevelt, he looked up into the heavens and he pointed to a faint patch of light right next to the constellation of Pegasus. He said, that's the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as the Milky Way. It's one of a hundred million galaxies and it consists of a hundred billion suns, each larger than our own. Then he turned back toward the White House and he told his guest, now I think we're small enough, we can go to bed. Hey, compare yourself to me and you'll loom large in your own eyes. But think soberly. Stack yourself up against the God who hung the heavens, who holds the stars in the palm of His hand. And friend, your stature will, sink, will shrink and sink. It will. Hey, don't worry. Tonight, God is fine if you go to bed. One step to walk in the will of God is to humble your heart. And then the fourth step is to exercise your faith. Paul says in verse 3 to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. I mean, one way to miss the will of God is to think too big. Think of yourself too big. But another way is to think of yourself too small. You know, it's one thing to, to think, be proud and be pompous, but it's another thing to, to think that God can never use you. You hear people all the time, well, I, I could never serve the Lord. I can't possibly do anything for God. He would never want to use me. Hey, you know what I found? A false humility provides for a convenient excuse. Sure, you're a nobody. But don't you understand that God uses nobodies to accomplish great things for His kingdom? Yes, God never likes a head inflated with pride, but He does want a heart inflated with faith. And to each of us, God has given a measure of faith. Don't tell me you don't have any faith. You demonstrate your faith every morning when you climb into your 1,200-pound suicide machine and you spend, speed 60 miles per hour down the freeway, trusting only in a sheet of metal a half-inch thick to stop you from plowing into other motorists. That takes a lot of faith. I'm just saying to each of us, God has given a measure of faith, and now it's up to us to use the faith we've been given. And as we do, God begins to guide our lives. Horse racing enthusiasts will remember the famed thoroughbred and triple crown winner, Secretariat. In the Kentucky Derby, a one-mile race, Secretariat had a faster time for every successive quarter mile that he ran. In other words, the horse got stronger as the race progressed. And this is what happens in the Christian life. Faith is like a muscle. You exercise it and it grows stronger and stronger. And the more your faith grows strong, the more guidance God supplies. 
You see, truck drivers know that it's awfully hard to steer an 18-wheeler while it's sitting still. But once you get that big boy rolling, and you can steer it with your pinky finger, God guides us as we rise up with the faith that we have and we begin to put it to use. When you start to apply God's word, the things that you know, God reveals more and more and more to you. Thus, to walk in the will of God, you need to exercise your faith. And then the fifth step to walking in God's will is to find your place. Read with me again verses 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now if you're an adult of average weight, it's amazing what your body accomplishes every 24 hours. Your heart beats 103,689 times. Your blood travels 12,000 miles. You take 23,040 breaths. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a quarter pounds of food, unless you're at the love and oven. And it's more than that. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths of a pound of waste. You move 750 muscles. Your nails grow 0.000046 of an inch. Your hair grows 0.01714 of an inch, except for some of you who no longer have any hair. And you exercise 7 million brain cells. No wonder you feel tired at the end of a day. Your body is a miracle of precision engineering. It's made up of several trillion cells all functioning together as one unit. A blend of unity and diversity and mutuality. And it's interesting that God chose to refer to his church as the body. We are many members but we're one body in Christ. We've been called to rub shoulders with one another. Every Christian needs to lay aside their own personal agenda and cooperate for the greater good. You might cringe at the thought, but it's true. You need me, and I need you. Our spiritual health and our effectiveness is dependent on our togetherness. Did you hear about the terrible controversy at the first church of the hand tools? This was awful. Some of the members started griping about Brother Hammer. He's too forceful. He keeps pounding home his points and nailing the rest of us. Well, Hammer, he pointed to Brother Screwdriver. He said, well, look at that guy. I'm no worse than him. He keeps going around in circles. And Brother Punch has to always get him started. Well, this angered Brother Screwdriver. What about Brother Plane over there? His work is all on the surface. He has no real depth. Brother Plain then shouted at Brother Tape Measure, You're so judgmental. You're always measuring people, sizing them up. You always think you're so right. Then Brother Tape Measure, he then turned to Brother Sandpaper. He said, Man, you're rough. You're, you're so gritty. You rub people the wrong way. Hey, why don't you just go back into the box? That's when the master carpenter arrived. Jesus put on his apron. And he went to work building a pulpit from which the word of God would be preached. And he used that hammer 
and that screwdriver and that punch and that plane and that tape measure and that sandpaper all in the right way and just at the right time. That's when brother saw. He saw it. He rose up and he said to the others, he said, Brothers, we're all tools of equal importance in the hands of the Lord. And guys, we are too. God guides us when we acknowledge our interdependence and we stay committed to one another. Fail to find your place in the body of Christ. Go it alone. Distance yourself from the rest of the church and you will hinder yourself from walking in God's will. Well, the sixth and the final step to walking in the will of God is to use your gift. In verses 6 through 8, Paul lists several of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Did you know that God has given to each of us certain spiritual gifts? To some of you, he's given more than one, but to every one of you, he has given at least one. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6 tell us, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Now, some Bible teachers see here three categories of spiritual gifts. The first category Paul mentions are the gifts or the charismata. The second are the ministries. And the third are the activities, or in the Greek, it's energio, or the energies. Risking a little oversimplification here, this points to three types of spiritual gifts. Motivations, ministries, and manifestations. The manifestations are listed in 1 Corinthians 12. They include tongues and healing and words of knowledge and the like. The ministries are found in Ephesians 4. And there are four of them, apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher. But the motivations are listed right here in Romans chapter 12. Now this being true, the gifts listed in our text are the basic tendencies, the basic inclinations, the motivations that the Holy Spirit places in our spirit at the time of our conversion. And in doing so, God colors the tint of our perspective The Spirit writes His will on our hearts by planting in us certain spiritual tendencies. Our motivational gift will determine how we approach and react to situations. Recognizing and utilizing our spiritual gift is crucial to walking in the will of God. Now realize a spiritual gift is not a natural talent, nor is it a learned skill. It's a supernatural enabling that you would have never possessed had it not been for the Holy Spirit giving it to you. The Greek word charismata combines two words, charis, which means grace, and mata, which means gift. Thus, our motivational gift is a grace gift. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's prompted by God's grace. 
And Paul lists seven possible motivational gifts. The first gift is prophecy. Now, sometimes we hear this word prophecy used as a synonym for premonition or prediction. And we associate it with the foretelling of the future. That's a misnomer, for its primary meaning is not foretelling, but forthtelling. Its primary purpose is forthtelling the Word of God. It's been said a prophet was not known primarily for his hindsight or his foresight, but for his insight. With this gift, God stirs up a heart and fills the mind and opens the mouth. And the prophet uses his faith to utter the specific message that God has given him. The prophet is God's bullhorn. He declares God's truth loud and clear. The person with this motivational gift will be quick to take a stand. He insists on correction and righteousness. He or she sees issues as right and wrong, black and white. They refuse to compromise. The prophet rises up in faith and without any fear of offending, he boldly proclaims the particular word of God that the Lord has laid on his heart. Well, The second motivational gift here is the gift of ministry. The root word is servant. Now we're all called to be servants. But the person with this gift goes above and beyond the call of duty. He depicts or illustrates God's truth through his actions. The person with the gift of ministry has a supernatural knack for helping others in practical ways. He or she loves serving the Lord and serving others. I'll never forget one Saturday... I was up here at the church and I saw a brother busy doing a handful of odd jobs that really needed to be done. And I walked over to tell him how much I appreciated what he was doing. And it was Paul who replied, and it was classic. He said, ah, Sandy, don't mention it. It's just what I'm here for. I'll never forget that, Paul. I mean, this is the kind of person who has the gift of ministry. The person with this gift seeks no recognition or payback. His reward is just the fulfillment that comes from using his gifts to glorify God. He's at perfect peace knowing what he's here for and just doing it. Well, the third motivational gift is the gift of teaching. And this is my gift. I mean, nothing fires my engines more than studying God's word and then teaching his truths to his people. William McGee once observed, teachers are divided into three classes. Those you can listen to those you can't listen to, and those you can't help listening to. The latter is the person with the gift of teaching. Teaching defines God's truth. A person with the gift of teaching can make, take profound truths and make them amazingly simple, easy to understand. It's been said of the good teacher, he put the cookies on the bottom shelf. I've heard it put, a teacher's task is to take a room full of live wires and see that they're properly grounded. That's my goal every Sunday here at Calvary Chapel. Well, the fourth motivational gift is exhortation. You see, teaching instructs us what to do, but exhortation encourages us to do what we know to do. It demands God's truth. The person with this gift challenges and motivates and incites others to action. He or she is the spiritual jumper cables that boost the batteries, the weaker batteries of of other brothers and sisters. 
Reminds me of the ocean liner out in the midst of the storm. The sea was rough. A woman fell overboard. The passengers were all clinging to the rail of the ship. They were watching when suddenly a man dove off the deck of the ship into the icy waters. He rescued the drowning woman. Everyone was so surprised when the hero turned out to be an 80-year-old man. Later, the crew threw a party in his honor, and they asked the man to get up and give a speech. The man stood and he said, I have just one thing to say. Who pushed me? At times, we need a little push, don't we? To do what we know is right. And the person with the gift of exhortation knows how to apply a gentle kick in the pants when we need it. Well, the fifth gift on Paul's list of of gifts is the gift of giving. And again, giving is a discipline we all should develop, but the person with the gift of giving just has a special knack for loosening the purse strings to bless others and to further God's work. I'll never forget the guy who used to attend Calvary Chapel here who had the gift of giving. God had blessed his business in a wonderful way, and he just loved to give back to the Lord. And he had an interesting method for distributing his gifts. He would take a $100 bill, and he would fold it up, and he would stick it in in the palm of his hand. And then he would walk up to you, and he would reach out, and he would just give you this warm handshake, and you could kind of feel it in your hand. You know, but you didn't really know what it was until after he released it, and then you kind of looked down, and oh my... $100 bill. We started calling them $100 handshakes. And I'll tell you, that fella never walked in the doors of our church that I didn't go out of my way to shake hands with him that morning. (laughs) I can promise you that. Just in case the Lord was leading that day. I miss those $100 handshakes. Hey, Paul says the person with this gift needs to exercise it with liberality. The word suggests no ulterior motives, no strings attached. If you possess the gift of giving, then give freely and selflessly. Well, the sixth gift in the list is the gift of leading. Spiritual management, we could call it. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40 tells us, Let all things be done decently and in order. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, He first organized the multitude into groups of 50. You know, throughout the Bible, we learn that God is organized and we should be too. It's been said, don't agonize, organize. That's why God has given certain individuals within the body of Christ the ability to organize and help us mobilize our efforts. Every year, the makers of duct tape, they give a $5,000 reward for the most creative use of their product. One year, the prize money went to Anthony Green, who was scheduled on a flight from Honduras to Guatemala. The pilot announced that there was a hole in one of the wings of the plane and that the flight would be delayed. Well, Mr. Green, he pulled a roll of duct tape that he carried around with him in his briefcase. He pulled it out. He walked outside. He patched the hole in the wing, and the airplane made its destination on time. You know, some people in the church, they operate the same way. They know how to patch things up and make things fly. God gives some members of the body of Christ the gift of leading to help us reach our God-appointed destination on time. And then the seventh and the final motivational gift is the gift of mercy. 
Mercy has been defined as your pain in my heart. It's two hearts tugging on the same load. Now again, we're all called to be merciful, but the believer with the gift of mercy has a special capacity to feel and identify and empathize with another person's suffering. And Paul tells those with the gift of mercy to exercise it with cheerfulness. You see, because of their sensitivity and their sympathy, people with this gift can get drawn into the depression of the person that they're trying to help. Two empathizers can end up having a huge pity party. That's why when you exercise the gift of mercy, you should reach out with a merry heart. You should stay upbeat, for it is the joy of the Lord that heals. Now, The question you've been wanting to ask. Now we'll deal with it. Pastor Sandy, you said that every believer has a spiritual gift. Well, how do I identify mine? And the answer is surprisingly easy. Ask yourself this question. If I were suddenly made pastor of Calvary Chapel, what would I immediately want to do? What would be the first changes that I would make? Well, if you say, hey, we get more involved in political issues. We take a public stand for godliness. Well, then I would say that you probably have the gift of prophecy. If you said, oh, no, we need to get involved helping each other. Let's reach out to the elderly. Let's have more activities for the kids. Hey, we might even want to spruce up the building a little bit. Then you've got the gift of ministry. Or if you say, hey, we need classes that offer in-depth studies on cults and church history and apologetics, even New Testament Greek. Well, you might have the gift of teaching. If your response is, hey, we need more home fellowships, more small groups, opportunities to encourage and challenge each other. Well, then maybe you have the gift of exhortation. Or you might say, hey, we need to put more stress on giving our monies to missions and assisting the poor. Let's have a benevolence fund. Well, then you obviously have the gift of giving. Or maybe your response is, I'd love to be the pastor around this place. I'm so sick of the lack of organization around here. We need better lines of communication. Well, then maybe your gift is the gift of leading. Or if you said, hey, let's start a prison ministry. Let's start visiting the shut-ins. Well, that is the beautiful gift of mercy. Now, if you need more help identifying your gift, let me give you another little exercise you could try. Let's say my grandson, Colt. He makes a little potted plant for his mom in Sunday school. And yet, as he enters the church to take that little potted plant to his mom, he sees his G-Daddy. And he loves his G-Daddy. So he comes running down the aisle. And he trips. And when he does, he throws that little potted plant up in the air and crash. It lands on the floor. Dirt, broken pottery everywhere. If you saw that happen, what would be your first reaction? Well, if your first move would be to jump up and start looking for a broom and dustpan to clean it up, well, then you probably have the gift of ministry. If your first reaction is to pull out your wallet and say, Oh, son, I can pay for that. Well, then you got the gift of giving. 
If you walk over to my grandson and tower over him and, and say, young man, let this be a warning to you. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord, there'll be many slip-ups in this life. You need to watch it where you steppeth. Well, then, hey, you've got the gift of prophecy, I'm sure. Or if your first reaction is to run over there and try to teach Colt a little clever move so he can write himself the next time he starts tripping, then you've got the gift of teaching. If your first thought is, man, how can we rearrange the chairs in this sanctuary to keep this from ever happening again? Well, then that's leading. Or maybe you put your arm around little Colt and you give him a pep talk. That's okay, Colt. You don't quit trying, son. You can do better next time. Well, you got the gift of exhortation. Or some of you, you'd run over there and you'd pick him up and you'd cuddle him in your arms and you'd say, let me kiss you little boo-boos. You got the gift of mercy. But realize, if Colt fell in that aisle this morning and broke his little potted plant, there would be seven diverse reactions all across this room this morning. And all seven of those reactions would be equally valid, God-ordained reactions to the situation. And if we realize this, we can avoid a lot of conflict. Say you've got the gift of mercy, and you see a guy with the gift of prophecy towering over a little colt, warning him about future trip-ups. You might assume that this guy's insensitive and callous. I mean, who does he think he is? Or if you have the gift of ministry and you see a fellow over there trying to teach Colt some clever step to avoid falling next time, you could think, look at that lazy jerk. Why doesn't he help me clean this mess up? <laughs> you see, it's everybody's tendency to judge other people in the body of Christ on the basis of their own particular giftedness. And yet in doing so, we destroy unity and harmony in the family. Don't forget, we all have different gifts that cause us to react to situations differently. We should be glad that everyone is not like us, that there are other points of view existing in the body. A healthy church will appreciate its spiritual diversity. Well, how are you doing skimming across the lake of God's will? Maybe some of you, you'd say, man, I haven't even gotten out of the water well, if that's so, here are six steps to put you in the proper position to start skiing, present your body, renew your mind, humble your heart, exercise the faith God's given you, find your place and use your gift. You follow those steps and your life will prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, walking in the will of God is not as complicated as we make it. We just need to get up and get moving. And I hope you'll begin that process today.